If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to join me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter, Matthew chapter six. This is part of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Specifically, um, what we're going to be looking at, have been looking at, is what's called the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer, the Lord's model prayer. You know, there are some conversations that you have that just kind of stick with you. If not every word, at least the gist of the conversation. I remember a conversation that I had many years ago. I was just out of college. I'm not going to say how many years, but, but, but quite a few years ago. Uh, I was working in an amusement park, and uh, I struck up a conversation with another fella who was working there and always looking for an opening for an opportunity to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and as we talked, I asked him his thoughts about God, and the response I got was surprising. Um, basically, his idea of God was that whatever you can think, that's God, all right? Whatever you can conceive of is part of God. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it conflicts with what somebody else thinks. It's God is big enough so that if you think the God is a certain way and somebody else thinks that God is completely the opposite, well, there's room for, for both of your beliefs and who and what God is. I didn't um, think of it at the time. I'm not sure I would have said it this bluntly, but you know what that's called? Idolatry. It's, it's, it's creating your own God. It's making God in your image, your conception of what he should be. And while at the time that really sounded nuts to me, I mean, it really sounded crazy, through the years I've come to realize that that's a lot of what people do. They pretty much make up their idea of what God is like. They just kind of conceive of what they want God to be like. And so that is what God is like. Many people worship not the God who has revealed himself in creation, in his word, and supremely in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but they worship the God of their imagination, God as they would like for him to be. This is important as we look at what we're going to be looking at, the, the phrase or phrases from the Lord's Prayer or the Lord's Model Prayer this morning. It, it is key, our understanding of who God is. The God we pray to, the God whose name we ask that he would hallow, the God whose kingdom we desire to come, the God whose will we want to be accomplished. Who is this God? What is he like? That's key, that's crucial. Follow with me as I read Matthew 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 5, read through verse 15, but we're going to be focusing on verses 9 and 10, the second half of verse 9 and verse 10 this morning. And when you pray, Jesus said, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. 
Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now I mentioned we've looked before at part of this prayer. We actually began looking uh, last week. We began, we're focused on this prayer because prayer is our first and most important responsibility all the time. But especially during times like this, times of controversy, times of conflict, times of confusion. This is where we find ourselves in the middle of 2020, right? And so prayer is essential, but then how should we pray? Last week, we focused on that opening phrase, those four words, our Father in heaven. And we considered that this phrase teaches us we have a corporate responsibility. He's not just my Father, He's our Father. We also looked at the fact that there's a confident expectation that this phrase gives us, our Father. God is our Father and we looked at how Jesus says, if you being evil comparatively know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? There's a confident expectation that God will hear and answer our prayers. But then the third thing we saw was the reverent approach. While he is our Father, he is our Father in heaven. He is the creator. He is the ruler of all that is, and that should shape how we approach God. But understanding that, there are three words this morning that I want to highlight that I I think kind of help summarize what we see here in these phrases. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word for that is significance. What is the significance of God's name and it being hallowed? The second word is sovereignty. Your kingdom comes. The word kingdom presupposes a king, a ruler, right? A sovereign. And the third word is the word submission. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, although that's often the way I live, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's look at these. First of all, look at the word significance. Hallowed be your name. What does it mean to hallow something? It means to honor it. It means to treat it as holy. So to treat God as holy. And the word holy when applied to God means separate. It means he's not like us. He's different. And he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our submission. He's worthy of our trust. So to hallow God's name means that we treat his name as holy, as revered. And there's something more because God's name really is referring to God's person, 
That is who he is in truth. Understanding this, again, is key to how we pray for God's name to be hallowed. In the Old Testament, a person's name is closely related to his character, who he is. That's why often people were given names with the idea that they would grow into them, they would reflect them. But when it comes to God, God reveals himself according to different names because of different aspects of who he is and what he does on behalf of his people. One commentator wrote this, God's name stands for God himself as he is revealed in nature and in scripture. To honor the name is to honor God, to hold him in the highest reverence and exalt him above all others. This raises a number of points. First of all, if we're going to pray for God to ensure the hallowing or the honoring of his name, that is his person, again, we must seek first that his name would be hallowed in our lives. That we would be the ones, if you are a Christian, you're called by the name of Christ, the second person of the Godhead. And, and thus we should desire that, that God's name, the, the name of our Lord would be revered, honored in our lives, not just by what we say, but also by what we do, by how we live. The first three of the Ten Commandments all surround God's person, including his name, right? The first commandment is, those of you here with me, help me out. I know you're mumbling, but I can't hear you. Yeah, it's the face mask, right? You shall have no other gods before me, right? No other gods before the one true and living God. The second commandment is, you shall not make any graven image, image, no idols with which to worship God. The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Understand, that means far more than just not using it as a curse word. All right? Certainly, it doesn't mean less than that, but it means a lot more than that. We are to not have any other gods. We're not to make any idols, and we are not to take God's name in vain. We need to realize that this goes beyond merely making physical idols, like the people in the Old Testament were prone to do, you know, carved statues and things like that. Certainly it rules that kind of thing out, but that's not all it means. We need to realize that we are forbidden from taking God's name in vain by giving lip service to the true and living God revealed in the scripture, while in reality, worshiping another God. That is the God of our desires, the God of our imagination. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes this on this subject. The realization that images and pictures of God affect our thoughts of God points to a further realm in which the prohibition of the second commandment applies. Just as it forbids us to manufacture molten images of God, so it forbids us to dream up mental images of him. Imagining God in our heads can be just as real a breaking of the second commandment as imagining him by the work of our hands. 
How often do we hear this sort of thing? I like to think of God as the great architect or mathematician or artist or something else. Or I don't like to think of God as a judge. I like to think of him simply as a father. We know from experience how often remarks of this kind serve as a prelude to a denial of something that the Bible tells us about God. It needs to be said with the greatest possible emphasis that those who hold themselves free to think of God as they like are breaking the second commandment. They're worshiping another God. At best, they can only think of God in the image of man, as an ideal man perhaps, or a superman. But God is not any sort of man. We are made in his image, but we must not think of him as existing in our image. To think of God in such terms is to be ignorant of him, not to know him. In this light, the positive purpose of the second commandment becomes plain. Negatively, it's a warning against ways of worship and religious practice that lead us to dishonor God and to falsify his truth. Positively, though, it is a summons to us to recognize that God the Creator is transcendent, mysterious, and inscrutable, beyond the range of any imagining or philosophical, philosophical guesswork of which we are capable, and hence a summons to humble ourselves, to listen and learn of Him, and to let him teach us what he is like and how we should think of him. He has much more to say. You can get the book in any Christian bookstore and read it. It's, it's an excellent book. But it's a reminder that we need to know God as he has revealed himself and not merely as we would like for him to be. I've read to those of you who are regular attenders, uh, at least a couple of times, something that Kevin Young, excuse me, Kevin D. Young wrote in a blog post about different perceptions of who Jesus is. And I just want to touch on some of that again because I think it helps us to understand what I'm talking about. He writes, the greatness of God is most clearly displayed in his son, and the glory of the gospel is only made evident in his son. That's why Jesus' question to his disciples is so important. Who do you say that I am? The question is doubly crucial in our day because not every Jesus is the real Jesus. And then he goes on to mention a few, and I'm not going to, he has quite a few, I'm not going to read them all. Uh, but he says there's the Republican Jesus who is against tax increases and activist judges for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus who is against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon, foot, carbon footprint and printing money. There's Therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. And then he goes on and on and on. Touchdown Jesus, martyr Jesus, gentle Jesus, hippie Jesus, yuppie Jesus, spirituality Jesus, platitude Jesus, revolutionary Jesus, guru Jesus, even boyfriend Jesus. The point is, the real Jesus is the Jesus revealed to us in God's word. The real God 
whom we are called, whose name we are called to hallow, whose person we are called to honor and obey, is the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. This is something we have to remind ourselves again and again and again. Why? Because our tendency is to resist and even reject those parts of God's revelation of himself that kind of rub up against us, that contradict the way we want to believe or the way we want to live. We need to humble ourselves. And rather than standing as judges over God, realize he is the loving, yes, gracious, merciful judge. But nonetheless, he is the one to whom we will someday give an account. So if we're going to pray for God's name, that is his person to be hallowed, worshiped, honored, and obeyed, it, it means we must have an accurate understanding of who he is, a biblical understanding of who he is. And where do we get that? The Bible, right? That means we need to be students of the Bible. Again, we need to look to learn from God in his word. That's the word significance. What does it mean that we are to hallow God's name? It means we are to honor him in our lives, honor who he truly is. Which really leads to the second word, and that is sovereignty. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom. As I mentioned earlier, the word kingdom conveys the idea of a king, someone to rule over it. At the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus proclaimed this message. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's Mark 1.15. The kingdom was at hand because the king, Jesus, had come. But it wasn't the kind of kingdom that many people were expecting. The Jews and even Christ's followers. After his arrest and before his trial and crucifixion, Jesus said this to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, it doesn't operate the, world, the way worldly kingdoms do. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying that the king, Jesus, would rule. That he would ultimately rule in this world but that first and foremost, he would rule in our hearts and our lives. Now, ultimately, our prayer desire should be for Christ to come again and to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. We look forward to that day. Maranatha, Lord, come. Especially in 2020, right? We really, Lord, come and, and fix all of this mess. His program and plan should be the preoccupation of our lives and our prayers. But until he comes, our prayer should still be, Lord, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come increasingly, perhaps incrementally, in the lives of more and more people. It's not automatic because there is a resistance to his reign, to his rule. Let me give you an illustration of why this is so difficult, especially those of us who are Americans. 
Theologian and author R.C. Sproul used to tell a story about the reaction of British evangelist John Guest when he came to the United States. He writes, when my friend John Guest, who was a noted evangelist in England, first came to the United States in the late 1960s, his first exposure to American culture was in the city of Philadelphia. During his first couple of days there, his hosts escorted him around the city to attractions such as Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell, and they told him stories of the American Revolution to introduce him to the history of this new world he was embracing as his home. John was enjoying all of this until they went to Germantown just outside Philadelphia and visited an antique store that specialized in Americana. Among the items in this shop were placards and signs that displayed some of the battle cries and slogans of the revolutionary era, such as no taxation without representation and don't tread on me. But the placard that drew his keenest attention was the one that announced with bold letters, we serve no sovereign here, no king. John said later, that sign stopped me in my tracks. I had left my native land and come across the Atlantic Ocean in response to a call, a vocation to be a minister of the gospel to proclaim the kingdom of God. But on seeing this sign, I was filled with fear and consternation. I thought, how can I possibly preach the kingdom of God to people who have a profound aversion to sovereignty? You know what? Every person who's ever been born has a profound aversion to sovereignty. We don't like to have rulers over us. We want to be our own boss. Those of us who are fathers and mothers have more than likely or not heard these words from our children at some time. You're not the boss of me. Whether we ever consciously say those words to God or not, what do our actions say? In Luke 19, Jesus tells a parable about a nobleman who went into a far country to receive a kingdom, but gave his servants money before leaving and instructed them to engage in business in his absence. But we read this, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. That's the heart attitude of every person outside of Christ. And even for those of us who have trusted Christ, it is still a battle that goes on. It is still a struggle that we live with. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 5.17 that the, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. This warfare that's going on between the flesh, that is our natural desires, and the Spirit of God who indwells us is essentially over who will be king in our lives, who will reign, who will rule in our hearts and in our lives. Do you pray for God's kingdom to come, to truly come starting in your own heart and in your own life? What would that look like? Well, that's the third point. The third point is submission. That's the word. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In many respects, praying your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is the counterpart 
to the prayer, your kingdom come. Because where the king rules, his will is done. If he's truly ruling, his will will be done. Now, it will never be done perfectly in our hearts and in our lives, this side of heaven, this side or this side of the return of Christ. But it should be done consistently. His will should be done on a regular basis in our hearts. That should be our great desire. Now, ultimately, it will be done when Christ returns. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15 about when Christ comes and and conquers and sets up his rule. He writes this, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be, to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, that is Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is just saying that ultimately that, that's what will happen. But in the meantime, the rule of Christ should be increasing in our hearts and in our lives. It comes whenever we are converted to Christ, converted to faith in Christ. That is God's will being done. Second Peter 3, 9, Peter wrote, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. That is the promise of the return of Christ as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So those of you within the sound of my voice, whether you're on the grounds or whether you're watching on the live stream, have you come to that place in your life Have you come to a place where you recognize that what the Bible says of all is true of you, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that that you have failed to obey God as he deserves to be obeyed, and that what you have earned through your disobedience is judgment. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Have you come to the place where you realize that you need a savior from sin? And have you repented, is the biblical word, turned from your sin, from ruling, reigning in your own heart and in your own life and put your faith in Jesus as Lord and savior of your life? Do it now if you haven't. Just right there in your heart, wherever you are. Say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. You are the only Savior. I put my trust in you. I turn from ruling over my own heart and my own life, and I put my trust in you. And he will receive you. All who come to him, he will not cast out. Trust in him. God's will will be done, ultimately. It should be done increasingly on earth. Where? In our hearts and in our lives. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't live like the world does. Don't do like you used to do. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that, you, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8 in the Old Testament, we read this. He has told you, O man, what is good, that is, what is God's will, And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? You know, one of the benefits of praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven is that the more we pray this, the more we become attuned to when and where God's will is not being done. And this leads us not only to pray with more fervency, but also to act with more urgency. And again, it starts with us, but then it doesn't stay with us. We not only pray for more of our lives to be surrendered to Christ's Lordship, but we use the means that God has given us. Again, His Word, prayer, fellowship with His people. As iron sharpens iron, so one sharpens the countenance of another. We use these means, self-denial, and service to others in order for the Lord's will to be done. But we don't just focus on ourselves. We also pray for unbelievers to be converted. Ultimately, if we're going to change actions, we have to change attitudes. If we're going to change attitudes, we have to change hearts, heart dispositions. It starts with the heart. It starts with where people are in their heart. I recently listened to the testimony of a Turkish man who pastors a Christian church in Izmir, Turkey. After trying to debate his Muslim friends and neighbors, he realized that he might win debates, but he wasn't winning any people to faith in Christ. He realized that what they needed and what would eventually lead to the conversion of some was not debate, but was the gospel, the good news of Christ. That's what people need. The good news that while we are all sinners, there is a Savior from sin, that God is rich in mercy and will receive all to come to him in repentance and faith. Are you praying for God's name to be hallowed, to be honored? Who is this God? Is he the God of Scripture? Or is he the God of your desires? Are you praying for his kingdom to come? Are you part of his kingdom? Does the king rule over your heart, your life, your attitudes, your actions? Is his will truly being done in you? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you as not only the the God to whom we pray, our our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Lord, you're the God who is able to accomplish this.
Lord, we pray that that indeed would take place. We pray, Lord, that you would begin truly in us, that you would reveal to us by your Spirit and through your Word, Lord, where we are in relation to who we understand you to be, in relation to your reign in our hearts and lives, and in relation to your will being done in us. Lord, we pray for a mighty, deep, lasting work of your Spirit in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.